You know, when, when Jesus came to this earth, he didn't ask people to invite him into their lives. He asked people to abandon their lives. And then he invited them to follow him, which is an entirely different proposal altogether. In fact, the two aren't even close to the same thing, but somewhere along the way in, in Western Christianity at least, we've replaced the message of Christ, which is take up your cross and follow me. We've replaced that with just invite me into your life. And so instead of giving up everything to become his disciples, we've been taught to simply add Jesus in to what we're already doing, like some kind of enhancement to our lives, not giving up anything. In truth, that perspective really isn't exclusive to American Christianity. It goes as far back as his first followers. In Luke chapter 9, as Jesus and his disciples were traveling, it says, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, if you're going to follow me, then you're going to have to leave your former life in the dust. Because there is no version of following Jesus Christ that doesn't involve leaving something else. There's no version of accepting Jesus Christ that doesn't involve rejecting something else. There's no version of receiving Jesus Christ that doesn't involve relinquishing something else. And there is no version of believing in Jesus Christ that doesn't involve denying something else. We cannot simply add him into our lives without giving anything up for his sake and believe that we're truly following Jesus Christ. He said, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Luke 14, and so look, as important as it is to have intent, as good as it is to intend to be a follower of Christ, good intentions simply aren't enough, as you can see by the passages we just read, which are full of people with good intentions, but lack the conviction to actually leave their former lives behind and follow Him, okay? Intentions are great. But intentions don't get the job done. So if your intention is to actually follow Jesus Christ, then the best place to start is by taking a long look in the mirror and asking yourself, what am I willing to give up to do this? Because that is exactly what Jesus challenged people to do when they expressed their best intentions to follow him. Again, as we just read, he said, okay, are you willing to walk away from everything that you hold dear? Are you willing to step out of your comfortable, predictable lifestyle, not even knowing where you're going to sleep from one night to the next? Are you willing to leave the life that you're living now in the dust to follow me? And the truth is, 
We should be asking ourselves the same questions today if our intention is to actually follow him because, look, there is a very real cost for doing so. So here's something to remember. Following something always means leaving something else. It doesn't matter what it is. If you choose to follow something, you're always leaving something else behind. And that is never more true than when it comes to following Jesus Christ. So what am I willing to give up to follow him? And another question like it for all of us who believe in him is what have I given up to follow Jesus Christ? These are hard questions to ask yourself and even harder to answer. You don't have to tell me, but we we must answer these questions if we're going to truly follow him because, again, this is exactly what he challenged people with when they expressed their best intentions to do so. He said, okay, then leave everything behind and you come follow me. But I'll just tell you, the more enamored that you are with this world, the more difficult it will be for you to actually do that and yet following Jesus with abandon is the only way you will ever experience this life to your fullest potential. There simply is no other way. And I'm I'm just being brutally honest here because I love you. There's no other path to reaching your fullest potential in this life than following Jesus Christ. There is no other way to get there because he is the only one who can lead you there. So just to be crystal clear, when you decide to take that journey, you will be tested. You will be tried. You will be challenged. In fact, Jesus said you will be hated. But if you're going to follow Jesus Christ and see your fullest potential realized in this life, I'm telling you, that is the price of admission. Which brings us to the point of this message today. Because if you're going to set out on that kind of journey, that kind of lifelong commitment, which by the way will also, here's the the good part, it will bring you the greatest blessing and joy and peace and reward that surpasses anything else in this life. But it will also test your limits at times. If you're going to leave everything behind that he's calling you to leave, and truly follow Jesus Christ, then there are some things that you will need to have with you. Some essentials that you dare not go without, which happen to be illustrated so beautifully in our story today as we continue our sermon series looking at the life and times of Joseph as Joseph's father, Jacob, prepares to uproot everything his family, his belongings, his land, his holdings in Canaan, his family business, his security. He's going to uproot it all and start all over again. And yet he's not about to embark on that kind of journey without knowing a few things first that we would do well to learn from today. So let's pick up the story right where we left off last week at Genesis chapter 46, and we'll talk about the essentials of following Jesus. We'll begin with the first four verses. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. 
Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. So when Jacob decides to take this journey, he's 130 years old. Right? He's been collecting social security for over 65 years at this point. Right? He has established himself and his family. They have position, influence, property, wealth in the land that was promised to God's people. This is not the time to be cashing it all in and moving to a foreign country during the worst famine in history to a place where outsiders are largely reviled. And as we'll see, shepherding families like Jacob's are considered the worst of the worst into a completely unknown situation other than the promise of Joseph, whom Jacob hasn't seen in over two decades. And by the way, None of that is lost on Jacob, which is precisely why after leaving Hebron, traveling south for 26 miles, he stops at Beersheba and takes time to spend with God, okay? Beersheba was at the, the southernmost border of Canaan. This was the last place you could stop before leaving the promised land. It's kind of like traveler's rest. It's the last place to stop before you hit the mountains, right? So this was the last place where he could uh, stop before going outside the, the promised land. Furthermore, uh, all the way from Beersheba until one reaches Egypt, there's nothing but desert. In other words, once Jacob leaves Beersheba, there's no place to settle. Uh, cultivation would be nearly impossible. The, the landscape is utterly inhospitable until you reach Egypt. And so Jacob stops at Beersheba, which was familiar to him uh, because his grandfather Abraham lived there for a time, as we see in Genesis 22. His father Isaac lived there as well for a time, as we see in Genesis 26. In fact, Abraham uh, planted a tamarisk tree there years before where he called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 21. And then Isaac built an altar for sacrifice there as he called on the name of the Lord in Genesis 26, where he received a very important promise from God. And so taking his cues from his grandfather and his father, Jacob stops at Beersheba to offer sacrifices on the altar that his father built many years earlier. And all that's very nice to know, but, but why? He knows he's going to Egypt. So why bother stopping at Beersheba before leaving Canaan? Well, the answer is found in verse 3 where God says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. You see, Jacob stopped before he left Canaan because he was afraid. Otherwise, God would not have said to him, do not be afraid, right? God wasn't wondering uh, if maybe Jacob was afraid. He knew that he was, which is why he reassures them. And I'll just point out here, that Jacob had good reason to be afraid. Because back in Genesis 15, 13, concerning Egypt, God said to Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. And then in Genesis 26, 2, God warns Isaac, Jacob's father, to stay away from Egypt. So Egypt for Jacob's family has historically represented a, a serious threat to God's people. And Jacob is no dummy. 
He knows that he's breaking with family tradition here and the word of God to his ancestors to stay out of Egypt. So he stops at Beersheba just before he leaves the promised land and reaches the point of no return to do just what his father and grandfather did because Jacob had to know that God was with him. Back in Genesis 26, 24, God made a promise to Isaac at Beersheba. He said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, Fear not, for I am with you. And here at the same altar at Beersheba, Jacob stops not going one step further until he receives a nearly identical promise from God in verses 3 and 4. God says to Jacob, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you. To Egypt, which is exactly what Jacob needed to hear before taking that first step out of the promised land. Because even with all of his family and all of his belongings and all of his wealth and all of his influence and all of his history, if he didn't have God with him, then he didn't have anything. And there would be absolutely no point in going one step further. Okay, if you're going to abandon life as you know it, to pursue the call of God in your life, then the very first thing you must do is make certain, and look, I mean certain, that God is with you. I received a call from a friend this week who made the decision several months back to walk away from everything except his wife and kids, of course, to pursue the call of God on his life. So he quit his job. He walked away from his income, his influence, uh, his friends, his neighbors, his comfort, his security net, all of his history, everything that he knew to pursue this calling with absolutely no guarantee of success into a colossal unknown. And he calls me this week and he says, Rob, I don't know if this was the right move. Nothing is going like I thought it would. Every single step has been a struggle. Nothing has been easy. None of it seems to be coming together. And so I'm wondering if I really heard from God or if I made a mistake. And then he asks me, what should I do? I said, look, all the things you just said mean nothing in terms of your calling, if you heard from God. But if you didn't hear from God, all the things that you just said mean everything, which means the only thing that you need to concern yourself with right now, my friend, is not taking one more step until you have heard from God. Jacob wasn't willing to take one more step until he heard from God because if God wasn't with him, Jacob wasn't going anywhere. Joseph or no Joseph. Why? Because none of his considerable resources would amount to anything without God. Today, most of you probably know, is Pentecost Sunday, which is celebrated each year Uh, seven weeks or 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, after Easter Sunday. In the Hebrew culture, Pentecost was called Shavuot, or the 
Feast of Weeks or the Feast of uh, uh, Festival of Weeks. It was commanded by God in Deuteronomy 16, 9, and 10 to be celebrated 50 days after the Passover to commemorate the giving of the Torah to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai. Today, at least in our tradition, we recognize Pentecost as a a commemoration of the events in Acts chapter 2, where the baptism of the Holy Spirit was first given to those early followers of Jesus Christ. And here's the point. Just as the law was given as a guide to God's people to follow, the Holy Spirit was given and is given to us as a guide to empower and direct us on this journey of following Jesus Christ. And so I just need to say to you today, that if you're trying to follow Christ on your own strength, by your own wits, with your own resources, in the end, you'll just end up frustrated and lost. So if you're, if you're the least bit unsure about whether or not God is with you, don't take one more step until you hear from him. You must know that God is with you because only he can lead you where you need to go. And look, if you're following Christ today with abandon because you know that he's with you and he's guiding you, then no matter what struggle or circumstance or hardship comes your way, don't stop for anything. You just keep on following him through every desert area of your life, through danger and toil and into great times of unknown, leaving everything else in the dust behind you. Because as the Apostle Paul said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.31. Jacob had to know that God was with him. And then as soon as he heard from God, he leaves Canaan in the dust. Let's keep reading verses 5 through 7. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt. And Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. So Jacob and all his family and all that he has make the most remarkable journey of his life. Once he crossed that threshold at Beersheba out of Canaan, there was no turning back. This was all or nothing. It was a full-on commitment. And you know, you know that with each step closer to Egypt... Jacob must have recalled that promise from God that he was with Jacob over and over again. You see, Jacob had to have great faith. There was no other way. This was a journey that would require great faith because there was no one or no thing left in Canaan for him. The, the text makes it clear in verses 6 and 7 that Jacob and all his offspring and everything that he owned went on this journey. So he didn't leave a few relatives in Canaan to hold down the fort in case things didn't pan out in Egypt. There would be no remnant there to preserve his land or holdings or the family business or to even maintain key relationships there. This was a total sellout to pursue the future that God had planned for Jacob and his family. And interestingly, uh, there's a now famous mural called the Beni Hassan mural from the 19th century B.C., 
the time frame of this journey from Egypt that was discovered in 1845 in an Egyptian tomb which depicts a large family from the region of Canaan migrating into Egypt, Semites. And we, we can't prove that it's a picture of Jacob and his family, but nonetheless, it is a fascinating illustration of what they would have looked like with all of their family and belongings in tow. It shows them with animals and weapons and musical instruments. Oh, all the men have full beards and they're wearing these colorful robes like the one Jacob gave to Joseph years earlier as they now enter into Egypt. The point being, Jacob's migration was no half-hearted <laughs> endeavor. He knew that God was with him and with great faith, he took all that he had leaving everything he'd ever known behind. Uh, there's a German theologian, Franz de Litch, he said about this uh, journey for Jacob into Egypt, he said his heart would cleave to Canaan, which was his native land by nature and his true home by promise. You see, there was nothing easy about doing what Jacob was doing here, and the risk couldn't have been higher. He was leaving behind his home and all that he knew into a great unknown. But what enabled him to press on through what had to be an incredibly difficult journey at 130 years old, leaving the home that he loved, what enabled him to keep going was the great faith in the promise of God. We stand to learn a, a, a thing or two here from Jacob because as we saw last week, God's Word tells us that He's working all things together for our good. But He doesn't always show us what that good is ahead of time, does He? Which means we have to have faith to believe that He will lead us exactly where we need to be when we choose to follow Him. Even when the road ahead doesn't look all that promising. In fact, in fact God has never called anyone to a life that doesn't require faith. You just read through the Bible and you'll find over and over again God calling people to live in such a way that without faith, they won't make it. None of those first disciples of Christ could have or would have, for that matter, lived the lives that they lived after Jesus left this earth without a profound faith that he was leading them every step of the way. And yet the way they lived was foolishness to the world. Which begs the question, really, what is your litmus test for whether or not you are, in fact, following Jesus Christ and his plan for your life? Is it that you're living in such a way that gains the approval of others? Or is it that you're living in such a way that if you don't exercise profound faith at times, you may not make it? Now understand, understand none of this has to do with earning God's grace or working your way into heaven, okay? We're incapable of doing that, besides which that work has already been done by Jesus Christ who did what we cannot do. So the idea that we have to somehow be good enough, uh, faithful enough, work hard enough, be obedient enough to earn a spot in heaven is what religionists have been peddling for millennia, okay? Religion is men demanding that you follow them. Christianity is Jesus Christ inviting you to follow him, which is what we're talking about here. But look, just because grace is freely given it doesn't mean your calling is easily fulfilled. 
Again, Mark 13, Jesus said, the world will, will hate you because of me. Okay? Following Jesus isn't always easy, nor was it meant to be. So the benchmark of whether or not we're following Christ and his good plan for our lives is not the approval of other people or how smoothly everything is going at any given time. No, the benchmark for following Christ is his approval, his voice in our lives, and the faith that we must exercise in the process because we cannot always see what lies ahead. In fact, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. Okay, now, the next 20 verses in our story are a lineage of the family, which we won't take time to read through today, but I'll just briefly comment on this section of the story. Okay, there are uh, two types of genealogies in the Bible, linear, uh, which record one individual for each generation, as in the Genesis 5 genealogy, and there's segmented, which we have here, which lists the names of several individuals through some or all of the, the generations that it records. So this particular segmented genealogy is arranged according to the mother of each brother in the order of Leah, uh, Zilpah, Rachel, and Bilhah. And not only does it give us background information and credibility to the historical record, but it points us to the future history of the nation of Israel as Jacob's sons head the individual tribes to come. Thus, its importance as a part of the biblical record, okay? But let's move on. We'll finish the story for today with verses 28 through 34 as Jacob now and his family finally make it to Egypt. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. And then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I've seen your face and know that you're still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, for they've been keepers of livestock, and they've brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. And when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians." And so Jacob and his kin make it to Egypt, specifically to the land of Goshen, which Joseph promised to the brothers on their earlier uh, trip. And incidentally, we have ancient Egyptian texts from what is called the, the Hyksos period between uh, 1750 B.C. and 1550 B.C., which refer to Semites living in the Goshen area, which was in the, the northeastern region of the Nile Delta. It was perfectly suited for herdsmen, which is what Jacob and his family were. And, and so here we have this tearful and highly uh, emotional reunion with the family there in Goshen, particularly between Joseph and his father, as you would expect, and uh, to the point that Jacob says to him, now let me die since I've seen your face and I know that you're still alive, uh, which wasn't so much an expression of, uh, on Jacob's part of actually wanting to die. It was an expression of relief and closure to the question mark that has haunted uh, Jacob all these years. 
right? Never really knowing what happened to his favorite son. And so now, being reunited with Joseph, Jacob is saying, in effect, whenever I do die, I can finally do so in peace. And then there's this interesting conversation between Joseph and his family where you realize that this deal giving his family free reign in the land of Goshen is actually far from a done deal (laughs) as Pharaoh has yet to sign off on the final approval. And so Joseph, of course, not uh, only knowing Pharaoh personally, but understanding uh, Egyptian cultural sensibilities as well, he coaches his family, his father and his brothers, on the best way to handle the upcoming meeting with Pharaoh, which will determine whether or not they will be able to live in Goshen, which really just underscores the precarious nature of this whole journey for Jacob and his family, right? They've packed up everything and everyone, traveled a long way through rough terrain into a foreign country with no guarantees that they will even have a place to live. But Jacob had heard from God, and he had great faith, and so there was just one final piece to the puzzle that he would need. Jacob had to be obedient. He's the patriarch of this great family. He's Abraham's grandson. He's lived on the earth a long time and seen and done some pretty incredible things, right? In Genesis 32, he wrestled with God himself. Back in Canaan, he had land and influence and wealth and power, and yet here he is, Jacob in a foreign land, with all of his worldly possessions in tow in the last chapter of his long and storied life, and he's being instructed by his son on what to say to Pharaoh, who will determine the fate of his entire family, at least in the immediate sense, which includes Jacob having to admit to being the one thing that the Egyptians detest the most, a shepherd, a keeper of livestock, But it's all part of God's plan for Jacob and his family. And so even though he has heard from God, and even though he has exercised great faith in the journey, Jacob still has to be obedient to the direction he's given on a daily basis, even if it's not always fun, and even when it's humiliating. Because knowing that God has given you a calling to pursue is great. And having faith that he can lead you there is great. All of that is good and necessary, but it's all for naught if we refuse to obey him on a daily basis while we're on that journey. And for Jacob and his family here, obedience happened to be the key to the fulfillment of their calling. So Joseph tells them that he will explain to Pharaoh that his family are shepherds, keepers of livestock, which implies the need to Pharaoh for land with expansive grazing areas like in Goshen. And then he tells them to explain to Pharaoh that not only are they shepherds, but they've always been shepherds to reassure Pharaoh that they wouldn't have ambitions later to expand beyond the settlement in Goshen. And also to drive the point home that his people should really remain segregated from the rest of Egypt's population in a place like Goshen, since shepherds were detestable in Egyptian culture. So all of this was designed to paint Goshen as the only logical choice for Jacob and his family to live in, in Pharaoh's eyes. And it works with textbook precision, as we'll see next week, so that the calling 
and the ultimate purpose for Jacob's life could be fulfilled. But Jacob still had to do his part. He had to swallow his pride that he may have had and live out the rest of his days as a foreigner in a foreign land, being considered one of the most detested class of people in that entire culture. Seems like from the outside looking in, a huge step backward for Jacob. If you consider his life up to this point, like it seems like a thankless way to have to live out the final years of your life until you consider the outcome of this move. Okay, from the, from the time God called Abraham, it took at least 25 years to add one son, Isaac. Then it took Isaac 60 more years to add another son to God's people, which was Jacob. Then it took 50 or 60 more years for Jacob to add 12 sons and one daughter. And then God leads Jacob to Egypt, where he has to start all over again. And yet after 430 years, Israel will leave Egypt with 600,000 men. So it took this family 215 years to grow to just 70 people. And yet in the next 430, they grow, including women and children, to over 2 million. His purpose was fulfilled, all because Jacob was obedient to follow the call of God on his life, even when it was anything but pleasant or easy. It's very important that we hear from God that we know what he's calling us to. And that will require great faith to even begin to go on that journey of following Jesus Christ. But look, each day along the way, we will be tested. We will be challenged. We will be required to lay our pride down and at times to do some difficult things. But knowing his calling... And having all the faith in the world won't get us to the place of fulfillment if we're not willing to obey day by day as we follow his leading. And therein lies perhaps the greatest obstacle between where we are and where we could be. You see, I think most of us know what God has called us to do. And I think most of us believe that he can lead us there. Otherwise, why would we come here and do all this, right? If we, if we didn't believe, we wouldn't bother. No, I, I think the biggest obstacle for most of us standing between where we are and where we could be is obedience. It certainly is for me. I know what I'm called to do. And I have every bit of faith that God can lead me there. It's the little decisions every day the ones where I have to swallow my pride, die to myself, abandon my own desires, and take my eyes off of this world and follow him to the exclusion of anything and everything else that could possibly get in the way. And that is a daily battle, a daily choosing to actually follow Jesus Christ. Some days I win that battle. Some days I don't. And the days when I don't, the battle is usually lost on the field of disobedience, even though I know what I'm called to do, and I fully believe that he can lead me there. It's all for naught 
if we don't obey him as we're following him. When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't ask people to invite him into their lives. He asked people to abandon their lives, and then he invited them to follow him. And following him always means leaving something else. And yet the more enamored you are with this world, the more difficult it will be for you to actually do that. And so you would be wise, as would we all, to take a long look in the mirror and ask yourself, what am I willing to give up to follow Jesus? Because following him with abandon is the only way you will ever experience this life to your fullest potential. There simply is no other way. There is no other path to reaching your potential in this life than following Jesus Christ. There is no other way to get there because he is the only one who can lead you there. And there's a very real cost for doing so. And the cost is high. In fact, it will cost you everything as you leave your former life in the dust. But if you're going to actually follow Jesus, that's the price of admission. So make sure you pack well for the journey. You're going to need to hear from God first to know that he's with you. You're going to need great faith to sustain you on the way. And you're going to have to be obedient as you walk that path day by day, even in the smallest of things. These are the essentials of following Jesus Christ. And if you stay the course, even though at times it will seem like you're taking steps backwards in the end, your great purpose in this life will not only be revealed, but it will be realized. And I'm telling you, there is no better life than that. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful that although we don't always know what tomorrow holds, you do. You've designed and crafted and created and equipped us for this great purpose in this life and the next. But that means following you, following your plan, not ours. So we need to hear from you. We, we need your voice in our lives. We need to know that you're with us, directing our steps, guiding our path as we embark on this journey of following Jesus Christ. And so help us on the way to know what to leave behind and to do so without looking back. Of course, that will require a lot of faith to do that. And so we ask you even, even for our faith as that too comes from you. And as the days pass and we're tested, challenged, confronted with choices day by day, 